Welcome to the Intersection Podcast, brought to you by Impact 360 Institute. Impact 360 Institute is passionate about equipping a new generation of Christ-centered influencers to understand, defend, and live out their faith in the marketplace. Here's your host, Jonathan Morrow. What would happen if a cold case detective examined the evidence for God? Well, that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of the Impact 360 Institute podcast. But before we get to that conversation about apologetics and evidence for God, I want to tell you about an opportunity we have for high school students that really train them in apologetics and worldview. It's a two-week summer immersion experience. I want to encourage you to go ahead and save the dates for next summer. It's July 10th through 23rd, 2016. There's only 40 spots available. This really is kind of a VIP experience where students have a high student-to-staff ratio. We have world-class apologists coming in like Sean McDowell and Brett Kunkel and others. We've got Christian hip-hop artist Derek Miner who will be here to talk about worldview in the arts. We have Brian Gadawa talking about worldview in film. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. So it's just going to be a fabulous summer experience for your high school student to allow them to deepen their faith. And I want to encourage you to save the dates because we're about to open registration for that. You can find out more about that at impact360.org slash immersion. I also want to tell you about we're now accepting applications for our gap year experience, a nine-month experience for college students, recent high school graduates, 18 to 20 years old, and it's just an amazing experience where students get to go deep, they get to be in this rich community, they get to learn why they believe, they get to learn about themselves and be ready to launch into that next chapter of their college experience. But I want to tell you about today's guest, and it's Jay Warner Wallace, and he's a cold case homicide detective. He's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University. He's a Christian casemaker and author of several books. Jay Warner's professional investigative work has received national recognition. He's appeared more often than any other detective on NBC's Dateline. He continues to consult on cold case homicides and television productions and has been awarded the Police and Fire Medal of Valor Sustained Superiority Award. He's a good friend. and Jay, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Well, Jonathan, you know how much I love your work, and I feel like we're kindred spirits, so I'm just really glad to be here. Yeah, so, you know, uh, you know, we've known each other for years now, and, and but our audience doesn't really know who you are. Could you share a little about your story, maybe your background, and maybe even how you came to Christianity and kind of how you do what you do now? Yeah, I was a really committed um, atheist for most of my life, and at 35, um, my wife and I, my wife was probably always more open to the idea than I was, but she knew not, not to really talk to me about it because I, I typically would, you know, I could argue my way down on this. And most of the Christians I knew, I was working as a police officer at the time, I was working on a, on a team that was in, involved in working career criminals and also some some major dope teams. But anyway, the point was I, I was the kind of guy who really had an investigative heart. And, and all the friends I had who were Christians, who were cops, uh, really didn't have much... Um, what didn't really weren't capable of defending what they believed as Christians. They they certainly had a high regard for evidence in their professional work. They just didn't they couldn't turn that corner. And if I asked them, well, give me three reasons why you trust this or why you believe this or that, they could never really make a, an evidential case for these things. And as people who were kind of wired as evidentialists, I just didn't see how they could believe one thing about their professional work and another thing about their their religious beliefs. So I just stayed out, you know, and, and my and my wife was we had kids and we had moved into this new neighborhood and we were there probably a few years. I had skillfully avoided going to church anywhere in that neighborhood and 
And uh, but one Saturday, she said, "We should go to church tomorrow." And I was more than willing to go, Jonathan, as a as an atheist, because my dad's been doing that for years. And uh, I, you know, I'm happy to make my wife happy on this issue. So we went, and the, the preacher, the pastor that day, he just kind of was talking about Jesus in a way that I really hadn't thought of him before. He was talking about Jesus just in terms of a, being a very smart, wise, ancient sage. Of course, he was saying a lot more about Jesus, but that was the part that really struck me. So I started looking at the, the you know, the words of Jesus um, just to kind of say, look, um, he's a smart guy. I want to hear what he has to say. And so I started reading the Gospels to get the, the wisdom words of Jesus, the the, um, the kind of uh, wise sayings of Jesus. You know, I was kind of hoping they're like Proverbs in there, you know, but they're encouched in the Gospels. So it wasn't long before I really had to look at the Gospels and see, do I take these seriously? Can I trust that these really are accurately recording the life and ministry of Jesus and the words of Jesus? And so that began a, 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 about a six-month search, which I chronicled in Cold Case Christianity, just to look at whether or not the Gospels are reliable. But I can tell you that even when that was done, Jonathan, I was not then done with my, the biggest problem I had was that those gospels have supernatural elements, you know, the, the resurrection, walking on water, feeding 5,000. And so I would have, I rejected all that stuff. I figured these were kind of a form of historical fiction, some truth, some fiction, kind of parse out the two. And at some point I just stopped and said to myself, okay, do I, why do I think, why do I automatically rule out anything supernatural? Are my presuppositions about naturalism true? And that's when I said, okay, it's time for me to take another step here and turn a corner and, and look at my presupposition, my, my, my views about naturalism, and see if really naturalism can explain the nature of the universe we live in. And that is what I chronicle in this second book, God's Crime Scene. I had to, to do both of these things before I could become a Christian, and I did them in this order. First, the reliability of the scripture. Second, do I really believe that God could exist to, to account for things like resurrections? So that was really my journey, and that's what the second book does. It just takes a look at the case for God's existence. That's outstanding. You know, in your first book, Cold Case Christianity is a wonderful book. Definitely want to encourage people to check that out and get a copy. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. But, uh, but Jay Warner's new book, God's Crime Scene, is the one we're going to spend some time talking about today. And, and you know, I'd love, love for you to talk a little bit about how the way that you see the world as a trained cold case detective, how did that kind of nicely dovetail into kind of examining the evidence for God? Well, I think there's a set of skills, and this is the one thing I hope to kind of bring to the Christian kind of case-making uh, apologetics community. I think a lot of us have got uh, a sense that there's some good evidence here. And we see things and we go, oh, that's a great, that's a great piece of evidence. Or that's a great argument. Or that's, that makes sense given our Christian worldview. But one of the things we're not typically trained in is what are the techniques that we use to uh, collect, collect evidence, uh, identify what is evidential rather than what is just an artifact in the scene. And, and third, once we do all that, assemble it powerfully into a case that is compelling in front of a jury. Those are skills that, for the most part, you, you know, not, not everyone does that every day unless you're a trained prosecutor or a trained detective or whatever. So for me, I, my whole approach here with both of these books is to not just, you know, here's the evidence. I mean, everyone does that. I, I want to be able to give you the evidence, but also train you to think clearly about how we do investigations, how we assemble uh, cases, 
And I try to teach you a skill set in each chapter. I try to use crime scenes and real cases of mine uh, and, and show you what the skill was that I had to use to solve that case. Then I'll turn a corner and apply that to some piece of evidence in the universe. And here's the basic premise here. In every death scene, we call these DBRs, dead body reports. We get detail out to dead body reports all the time. doesn't mean that someone's been murdered because you could die accidentally, naturally, suicide, or get murdered. So we have to first discover and, and determine which kind of murder is it, or which kind of death, I should say, is it? Is it a murder or is it just an accidental? we got to kind of figure this out. And the simplest way we do it, the simplest technique we use, is to simply ask the question, can I explain everything inside the room by staying inside the room. If I get there and the victim's lying in the room and there's a headshot injury or there's no, not some kind of bullet, uh, gunshot injury and I've got a pistol on the ground, and but the pistol belongs to him, registered to him. His fingerprints are the only fingerprints on the gun. There's no evidence of an intruder and everything's locked up tight and there's no DNA or fingerprints in the room other than his. I've probably got an accidental or a suicide. On the other hand, if the gun's not his, there's fingerprints and DNA in the room that don't belong to him, and there's even bloody footprints leading out the front door. Okay, well, now I've got stuff in the room that I cannot explain by staying in the room. I have to go outside the room for an explanation. So if you have to go outside the room, now everything shifts because you've got a good reason to believe there's an intruder, and now you have the real reasonable inference of a murder to investigate because you can't explain everything inside the room by staying inside the room. And that's what we do in God's crime scene. We simply say, given eight pieces of evidence that we see inside the room of the universe, can we explain and account for these by staying inside the room? If we can't, then we have to go outside the room of the natural universe. Well, what does that point us? It points us to some external supernatural cause, extra natural cause, supranatural cause that could explain the evidence. And that's what I think we see when we look at the evidence in God's crime scene. Yeah, that's that's excellent. You know, and thinking rationally and critically about that is something that you bring to the table and something historically Christians have understood to be a part of this discipline called apologetics or we're giving reasons for why we believe what we believe. But let's let's deal with maybe an objection first. Maybe somebody might be listening or even a skeptic's like, well, look, I thought this whole thing was about blind faith. Like, why are you trying to bring science and leverage science for God? Is that is that even biblically appropriate or a religious thing to do? This is the great thing about the Christian worldview. It's like, you know, you and I are both book writers. You know, we both are authors, and we're always thinking these ideas out, and then we're finding a place for them in a the book that we're trying to, you know, help the Christian community to see the, the sense of it. And that's where the next book I'm writing is going to go. We really have to talk about well, what is unique about the Christian worldview? You know, I, I always say this, Jonathan. If I was I told you that last night I had a vision, and God told me three things to share with you, how in the world would you ever falsify that vision? How would you falsify my claim? You really wouldn't be able to. I could always say, yes, I did. If you said, no, you didn't. But if I told you that yesterday God came to me in the form of a human and gave me three things to tell you, and he did it while we were having lunch in my backyard with two of my friends, and afterwards when he saw how dry my grass was here in California, he decided to help me dig an irrigation line, and then he decided to build a treehouse in my tree. Well, that's a very different kind of claim because now you can actually start to investigate that and falsify or verify. You can talk to my friends. You can look at my backyard and see if there's a divinely designed irrigation ditch or if there's a really cool treehouse, whatever the case may be. You could actually investigate that kind of claim. And Christianity falls of these two views of how God might act. 
Christianity falls in the second category. It makes a claim about something that is rooted in history, just like the event yesterday in my backyard with my two friends. And you could actually do some work to verify. And Jesus knew this clearly because he knew he was acting in history. And that's why in John 14, he says, hey, if you don't believe me, the things I've been saying to you, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles that I've worked in front of you, things I've done in your presence historically, yesterday, day before yesterday. You can go talk to people who I heal. You can go talk to those people who I fed. He's, he's acting in history and pointing people to that event in history to verify or to falsify. And you even see him staying for 40 days in Acts 1 after the resurrection, giving many more convincing proofs, it says. So, so you have him acting in history. Now, if that's the case, the kind of faith that we have as Christians is not blind based on, gee, I hope that Jim's telling me the truth about those three, those three things that God said to him in a vision. Instead, I, it's a claim that's grounded in history, that's provided that the, even the people who made the initial claims have given us reason, historical reason to believe this is true. So it's a reasonable trust in something that, regardless of who you are, Jonathan, you know that everyone who holds a worldview holds it with incomplete evidence. We don't have complete evidence for any view we hold. There's always a chance that something else could emerge, something we don't know. So we take a step of reasonable trust given the evidence we do have across a gap in our knowledge to set to a conclusion. I just think that the Christian worldview, the theism in general, has a much smaller gap to a conclusion given the evidence than, say, atheism which leads us to different conclusions with a much broader gap. For example, the eight things we talk about in this book really cannot be explained at all by atheism. And so I think this is the kind of stuff that we have to look at. And, and in the end, accept that worldview, because all we're going to require is some step of trust, but it's a step of reasonable trust in the light of the evidence. That's a very biblical view of faith. Yeah, that's excellent. And it's so important for students to get this. We both have the opportunity to work with students. I get to work with students here at Impact 360. And, and, and one of the things that I see that's it, it's just a pivotal plank in their formation as a young man or a young woman is to come to a place where they own their faith. And part of that is, why do I believe this? Is there actually evidence for this? So what you're talking about is so important for us to grasp. And so maybe we can spend a little time maybe picking out an element or two of the evidence that you talk about in the book that maybe indicates that God is outside the room, or we need an explanation that's outside of the room, as it were, when you look at the, the, the universe or the natural world in that sense. So could you maybe talk about maybe a powerful piece of that evidence? Yeah, so I give eight pieces. What's so cool about the case for Christianity or the case for theism that I see in this in the God's crime scene is that, you know, Jonathan, if I was looking at you as a suspect in a murder and I, and I had a witness who said, yeah, I saw Jonathan at the scene, that would be good. But if I had both that witness and then I also had your fingerprints and DNA at the scene and I also had behavior on your part before and after the crime that inclined me to believe you're involved and I also had some statements that you made that really implicated yourself in, in the crime, well, now I've got lots of different pieces of evidence and very different divergent categories, all of which point to you as my suspect. And that when you have the more you have and the more diverse categories that points to the same reasonable inference, the better trust you can have that that's a reasonable inference. And that's what we happen to have in God's crime scene. We have 
four separate categories of evidence that are very different from one another. Cosmological evidence with the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, biological evidence in the origin of life and in the appearance of design and biology, mental evidence in your own consciousness and free agency, and moral evidence in the existence of transcendent objective moral truths and in the kind of persistent problem of evil we see in the universe. These are things that are in four very different categories. I do believe when we look at the evidence for those four things, the most reasonable inference is, is God existing outside that becomes the a spaceless, timeless, all-powerful, immaterial mind that creates creatively using the free agency that he possesses and designs creatures in his image with that same kind of conscious free agency. And he acts as the standard for moral truth and the standard by which we would say anything is evil. That, that source, that first cause to me is the most robust and best explanation for these eight things. And remember, whatever... Uh, explanation you have. Uh, for those say I go into a crime scene and I have eight pieces of evidence in a crime scene that point to the same suspect. Well, guess what? That, that suspect has to account for all eight pieces. So what happens here is if you think, well, gosh, I can explain the beginning of the universe by way of a multiverse generator that, or a quantum environment that pops the universe into existence. Remember, that same source, that same cause has to also give you the other seven pieces of evidence. The appearance of design and biology, the fine-tuning of the universe, the, 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 the kind of consciousness that we all experience, free agency we all experience. That multiverse generator may be able to give you a universe, but can it give you all the other stuff? No, see, it really can't. And that's the problem. And there is, of course, one, as we describe the suspect in this case, piece by piece, there is one cause that I think could give you all that robust evidence and all that diverse evidence. And that, of course, is you know what we typically shape out and describe as as God. He looks an awful lot like Yahweh by the time you get done looking at the pieces of evidence. Yeah, and that's remarkable, and that's such a great overview of of the powerful evidence, really explaining what needs to be explained. So I'm I'm, I'm talking today with Jay Warner Wallace, uh, author of the excellent new book God's Crime Scene. You can find out more about this book at GodsCrimeScene.com. Um, and also his other website, coldcasechristianity.com, and his excellent first book. I'll have links to those in the show notes. And as we talk more about the evidence, maybe let's talk about um, maybe the, the design that we might see in, say, biology or, or DNA. Talk about some of the kinds of things that can't be explained, perhaps, by, say, naturalism or atheism, whereas naturalism is this idea, this worldview that all that exists really is explainable in terms of physics and chemistry, biology, and genetics. But but what what are some of the kind of pointers that point beyond what the resources like naturalism could bring to the table in terms of biology or DNA? Yeah, actually, naturalism, as you know, has just got to explain everything, given what few resources we have available in the universe, space, time, matter, the forces of, of, of physics and chemistry. And, and, and even the most stringent naturalists like a Richard Dawkins will say, hey, you know, uh, we've got to – biology is really the effort to explain the appearance of design in biological structures, although he would deny a designer. So, so that seems does seem clear that we have the appearance of design at least to explain. And of course, you can't even begin this process of talking about biological biological structures and about the appearance of design until you first recognize we got to the most basic forms of life have to come up emerge out of the only materials available to the naturalist universe: space, time, matter, and physics. And as we ask these important questions as detectives, you know, the what, how, when, where questions, that's what really exposes the problem with this entire origin of life and design and biology problem we have. 
Because when you ask simple questions like, well, where could this emerge? Where, where could it happen? And your naturalist will say, well, they've looked at the oceans. They've looked at the kind of primordial soups. They've looked at uh, the land and clay structures. They've looked at, um, you know, in the atmosphere. They've looked at under the tectonic plates or by, you know, sea vents. They've looked at space as an origin for the simplest amino acids and protein formation. And none of these locations provide them with any clues. And the reason why they don't is because there's a couple of problems. The biggest problem is there's a chicken and egg problem in all of biology at the foundational level. You just can't get the proteins you need to, to, to form the simplest biological structures unless you have the machines to make proteins, which are themselves made of proteins. So ribosomes need, are, are machines that help in the creation of proteins, but they're built from proteins. You've got a number of these chicken and egg problems that are in biology at the base level. And the, and the reason why they are, uh, it's basically, uh, it's a worse problem, as you and I both know, Jonathan, and that's that to overcome these chicken and egg problems, biology kind of taps into an even bigger mystery, which we call genetic you know, information, the genome, the DNA. Because the DNA is what kind of instructs the formation of these things. It helps you overcome a number of these chicken and egg problems. But the problem with DNA is that it truly, truly is information at the highest level. And I try to demonstrate that in the book. It's not just low-level information you can get from natural causes, natural forces, or physics, or just chance. It's high instructional information that, that, that actually requests certain things to be done and expects those things to be done in response. And when you see that kind of level of information, you're stuck. And as Stephen C. Myers has said in you know, so many of his writings, he's, it's a great, obviously we all love Stephen. He's a philosopher of science. And he's very well educated. And he's really made a great observation. And that's that we don't have an example anywhere in the history of science or the history of the universe in which information has come from anything other than intelligence. So if we've got information in the genome that helps overcome the chicken and egg problem, we got to ask ourselves, what could give us this information if, if, if natural forces of physics and chemistry can't do it? If we're looking for intelligence that does this, well, that really, I think, is a deal. And a lot of, like Anthony Flew, other committed atheists have really realized the problem that, that the information in the genome presents to naturalism. So, so anyway, it's, 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 it's really something we have to kind of take a look at and ask ourselves, isn't there a better, you know, the one question nobody wants to ask, Jonathan, when you ask these, in every investigation, I have to ask it, you ask the what, the how, the when, the where, but at some point you have to ask the who question. And, and the problem we have with all the kinds of questioning that's done by naturalists when it comes to the origin of life and when it comes to, to the appearance of design is that's the one question that none of them want to ask. And as it turns out, that's the one question that can solve all the unanswered questions in all the other categories. If we ask a who question, we can, we can actually locate and identify an intelligent source that could account for uh, information in the genome. And, of course, that's going to drive us right outside the room. They're going to drive us into an external um, you know, divine mind that is the intelligent source, the creative source of, of DNA and the genome. Yeah, and that's an excellent, excellent explanation of the evidence. And, and you and I both know when we interact with people, there's a follow-up question lurking in the background. There's an objection. People are like, wait a second, hold on. Why bring, because you brought up the who question, right? So why bring God into it? Like, why can't we just wait for science to figure this out? This seems like the old God of the gaps argument or appealing to some religious thing. 
by faith. Right. And it's kind of speak real briefly to that objection because, you know, it's such yeah. a common one. Absolutely. No, it's absolutely. I, I had that objection myself as an atheist. I always said, hey, I, I felt like in the 60s and 70s growing up, science was taking steps and steps and steps towards these answers. Why would we stop suddenly in this long trail of steps toward the answer to say we're going to stop now and jump off the trail? No, to stay on the trail, you're going to eventually get to an answer. But that's why what I try to do in God's Crime Scene in one of the chapters is I don't think this is an argument from ignorance that I point to design. As a matter of fact, when you walk into a crime scene, you've got to ask yourself certain questions about the evidence you have in the scene. Is it an accident? Did, did nature blow this over onto this guy? I mean, we have to ask questions about causality. And do we have an intelligent being involved in the causality that results in this evidence? I think there are actually eight attributes, positive, affirmative attributes, that always point to an intelligent designer that are, exist in designed objects. So uh, this is, I think, more, much more cumulative, robust approach than I've seen others take in this regard. So I would say, hey, Dembski's right. You know, the insufficiency of, of natural law and the high improbability of chance really do point to something else. But but then again, B, he's also right. The irreducible complexity we see in some microorganisms uh, points to design. And then again, Fuzrana is right. The, the pattern resemblance, when we see something that resembles another known designed object, well, there's four pieces. I add four more. So this is not an argument from ignorance or an argument. It's that there's no way that chance or natural law can ever account for these eight pieces that we see in design objects. It's always the most reasonable inference that you've got a reasonable, an intelligent designer when you see this. So I give an example from a crime scene that I've worked in the last couple of years where the officers back in you know, the 70s walked into the scene and saw a designed murder weapon. And the reason why they recognized it immediately was not an artifact of the room. It was not something broken off the edge of the bed. It wasn't something broken off the plant stand next to the bed. They recognized that this was a designed object because they saw all eight of these characteristics. I do think that those eight characteristics exist over and over and over again in biological structures. So it's not an argument from ignorance. And, and, and again, when you get in a courtroom, you, you're tasked with making a decision based on the evidence presented to you today. You cannot say in that, that jury room, well, what if five years from now something comes up that changes, you know, that changes everything? Well, if you don't think there's enough evidence, don't vote in that favor. But you cannot wait, hoping that there might be something else in the future that will emerge. You're asked to make a decision today to say that, hey, Science might, I don't know the answer to this, and it sure seems impossible given the science we know today, but someday we think science will have an answer, is the absolute naturalist equivalent to saying, I don't have an answer for this, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask God. They wouldn't let us do it. That would be God of the gaps. We ought not let them do it. This is simply science of the gaps. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the kind of case that we're making, the kind of case that, that J. Warner Wallace makes in this excellent book, God's Crime Scene, is not an argument from ignorance. It's an argument from evidence, and it's so cru cru crucial to grasp that point. You know, one of the things is, you know, there's so much more in here. I mean, there's stuff on uh, the moral argument for God and, and free will and human agency and the origin of the universe. So I really encourage listeners to go pick up a copy of this book. Again, there's links in the show notes here at our website, impact360.org. And uh, we'll, we'll get you over to, to Jim's webpage and, and where you can find the book and everything else like that. But w one question I had for you um, was, is there one bit of the evidence as you travel around, especially that students in the younger generation tend to resonate with more than others when you talk about this evidence? 
well, you know, I, I, I always change, you know, I'm, I'm always, I, I see all, all these things were persuasive for me. And I, and I sometimes will say, wow, number, number one is more powerful. Or number five is more powerful. But, but I, I was just talking with Frank Turk is in front of both of ours. And, and I think that he's, he makes a good point. And I think he's right. Is that one of the most persuasive things for us is that we have the ability to persuade the fact we can make an argument might in fact be the best argument. And the reason why we can make an argument is because atheism's description of the universe is simply false. If it was true, then all we would be are physical creatures in a physical universe, which means we'd be deterministic creatures in a deterministic universe, because if all we are are like dominoes falling against each other, all of our neurons are simply neurons firing and causing another event, another physical event in our brain, that means that everything is nothing more than dominoes. And guess what? Dominoes can't make choices. Dominoes simply fall when they're told when they get knocked over by the first domino. So the fact that we think we can choose between two competing ideas of the universe just simply demonstrates we're not in the first idea about the universe, which is physicalism. We have to be in a universe that is not limited by materialism, is not limited by physicalism, in order for us to be able to make a choice between ideas. So this existence of consciousness and free agency is really hard to explain. I think it's impossible. Why this problem of mind? It's called that by physicalists, by naturalists who don't understand how a brain could eventually produce, a material brain could eventually produce a non-material mind. How uh, physically determined processes could ever allow for free agency. Well, it turns out we all know we have consciousness. You know, even if we, we, we don't think we have a conscience, we have to have a conscience in order to think we don't have a conscience. I mean, we're stuck with this reality. And the fact that we're stuck with it ought to be make us stop and think about whether or not physicalism, whether or not atheism could really be accurately describing the universe we're living in. It turns out the best argument for God's existence might simply be that we have the ability to make an argument. Yeah, that's great. And, and that's just another just prominent feature. It's one of those assumptions kind of hidden underneath the surface that we don't even bring up sometimes because it's like, wow, wait a second. We are having a rational conversation right now. I'm able to evaluate things. This is something I can think through and those thoughts are connected. But a thought is not a physical thing. My thought about this interview doesn't weigh something, right? My, my thought about your book doesn't weigh as much as the book does. And so, so there's... There's important things we need to talk about. So much good stuff we could we could talk about even more and more. Maybe the last thing I'd ask you to do, Jim, is just maybe share with our our audience. We have a lot of parents who are listening, and sometimes they can feel really intimidated by the culture in which we live in, trying to raise their students. It's a scientific based culture that they live in kind of give them some encouragement and maybe a next step they can take to have better conversations with their own children about these issues and things like this. Yeah, and let me just do a shameless plug for the work that you're doing, Jonathan, there at Impact. Because there's no, there's no doubt that, that, that both of us see a need. Of all the people in the church right now, the most important generation are those people who are between, you know, um, 15 and 35, you know. And that's what I think Impact 360 is really designed to meet the needs for those folks. I mean, what we're doing here is this. We know that you and I, at my age, I'm a lot older than you, but even at your age, you can pick the peers you want to hang out with, and you can pick all the people that you want to have dinner with, uh, spend your afternoon with. But when you're in the age of, of a college student in a foreign environment at the college university, you don't really get to pick your peers and pick the professors and pick the people who are going to speak into your life the way you do as an older guy like me. 
In fact, you're surrounded by people who usually hold a very different worldview if you hold a Christian worldview, especially as the culture is leaning more and more and more away from Christianity. That's why you, you know our stories are replete anecdotally with parents who will tell us that their kids are no longer Christians, and they kind of came out or impacted deeply by what they learned at the university. And it turns out if you ask those parents, well, gosh, did you see some changes along the way? They will always point to situations where, yeah, I saw it. I kind of saw it unfold. And, and, and of course, what that means is, is that each of us as a parent probably has an opportunity to say something, to do something, to, to be able to, to, um, to speak into the issues. If only we know enough to be able to make the case because what we don't need is another million-dollar apologist. You know, you've heard me say this a thousand times. We need a million one-dollar apologists. It turns out the first and most important apologist that your students need to hear from is us as their parents. Because we could say, oh, read Jim Wallace's book. Well, guess what? They're not going to read it. You're just going to stick it in their suitcase. They're not even going to open it when they get to college. On the other hand, if they come home for a break and they're there with you at Thanksgiving and you've mastered the concepts that are in all of these books, like, you know, like the one you wrote with, with Sean McDowell, Is God Just a Human Invention? I mean, that's a great book to master before your students get home so they can be ready, so you can be ready to answer some of the foundational objections to God's existence. And they're not going to read that book. They may at some point, but only after you introduce the concepts in that book. So I always say, if you want to give a book to your students, as a way of kind of protecting them. You read that book first, you master that information first, and then you become the best apologist your son or daughter is ever going to have. It turns out that they're with us as parents more than any other person. Your youth pastor only gets them for so long. You know, even at, at Jonathan only gets them for so long and they go away for, the, for that gap year, which is about to start here in a little bit, or for the training you guys do on a, a, in the spring. All that stuff, you only get a small touch but parents go deep and long with their kids. And that's why the best apologist, you need to be that apologist for your kids because you're the first person they're going to come to asking for a question. So, yeah, I do want to just affirm your work there, Jonathan, because what you're doing is incredibly important with the most important generation in the church right now. This is the generation that's going to be attacked by the culture most diligently. This is the generation that needs to be able to make a case for what they believe. So I just want to give you some encouragement. Just keep up the great work there. It's really important that we're both in the game. I'm glad we are. And I hope that this book, I know it's a, I'm raising the bar for students with this second book. And I'm just hoping that they are ready to take that next step. I think they are. And I think that parents for sure need to get ready. So either get ready by training yourself, get ready by tapping into what Impact 360 has to offer. But all these programs that are out there, both of us are working hard to kind of build up we want to help you protect your kids. Well, and, well, thanks, Jim. I appreciate those kind words, and, and it's it's awesome to be laboring uh, alongside you, my brother, and on that, and just really appreciate your work, the the, the time, and the effort to, to write such an accessible book. There's lots of great illustrations and charts in this book, God's Crime Scene, uh, written by Jay Warner Wallace. And as a parent, if you're listening, get this book and, and begin to master some of those things. It's accessible, but it's worth it. You know, the New Testament calls us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have and to make a defense, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we have an opportunity. It's a crazy, busy culture. There's always stuff to do, but there's nothing more important than, than having these kind of conversations and being ready to have something to say when we're given an opportunity. And so just uh, want to encourage you guys as you're listening to take a next step to think through 
what can you do this week where you can grow? And as, and as Jay Warner Wallace was talking about, you know, a, a $1 apologist in that sense of like, look, okay, look, I'm not going to take over the world. I don't need a PhD, but I can, I can do a little bit this week. I can think about this issue. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you to take a step this week where you really understand a little bit more about why you believe what you believe, and then you're able to better make that case in whatever environments or spheres of influence God has placed you in. And so, um, Jim, I just want to thank you for joining us today on the Impact 360 podcast. It's been a delight having you. Again, people can find out more about your work at godscrimescene.com, and we'll have links in our show notes. But, Jim, just want to thank you for the work that you've done. Hey, thank you, Jonathan, for having me. I appreciate it. I see us as, like I said, we're co-laborers in this, so get back at it. I know you're busy. Get back at it and do great kingdom work. I appreciate it. For more information about our worldview and leadership experiences for students, visit impact360institute.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.